Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Stanford Center for South Asia podcast. You can find all our podcasts and information about the center on our website, southasia.stanford.edu. And I am Lalita Duperon. I chose that track as our intro because it's a modern piece of music referencing a short story written by Sadat Hassan Manto, first published in 1955, which addresses mental health and the, uh, if I may say, insanity of politics, um, specifically at the time of partition in 1947. So the track for me encompasses everything I want to talk about today. History, modern politics, mental and physical health, and the power of the state. And to help me think through all of this, I am joined virtually by Madia Achter, who is a PhD student in the history department here at Stanford. She works on modern South Asia and the British Empire and has an interest in gender and global history. Those are the very topics I want to discuss with her with respect to her research as well as to our ongoing theme in the podcast series of COVID-19. Madia, welcome. Thank you so much, Lalita. It's, it's wonderful to, to talk with you. Great. Well, start us off by telling us a little bit more about your research. Of course. So as you mentioned, I'm a historian of modern South Asia and the British Empire in the 19th and 20th centuries. And my research and teaching interests examine political history and specifically religious and gendered minorities on the subcontinent. And some of the classes I've taught at Stanford uh, look at comparative partitions. Uh, Dobar Deksing is definitely on that syllabus. Uh, modern South Asian history. I've also taught trans history. Okay, well, thank you for contextualizing yourself. Let's bring COVID straight into the discussion. Uh, the whole world has been affected by COVID-19 in both predictable and uh, unpredictable ways. And we in higher education institutions are continuing to have to make difficult decisions to keep education going while also keeping everyone safe. Would you say there, is, uh, there are any specific ways that historians have been affected by COVID-19? Generally speaking, historians are somewhat lucky in that most of our work, for example, teaching, writing, is generally transferable to a home setting. And many of us are like so many others, worried for the health of our families, our loved ones, our communities. Uh, and specifically for historians, uh, archives across the world have closed. Fellowships that offer funding for archival research have either canceled or postponed until further notice, which very seriously affects graduate students who re rely on this type of funding. Mm. Um, and other students, uh, graduate students in history, especially are facing difficult decisions about visa statuses, especially in relation to, uh, to funding sources. Um, but at the same time, I think historians have a lot to offer on the current situation and have been really quick to join the opinion and op-ed sections of our newspapers, local national newspapers, to report on historical pandemics. Um, so while these articles do focus on the past, they also address questions related to COVID-19, uh, mainly having to do with discrimination. So contemporary discussions in the US, for example, around uh, ideas of immunoprivilege or immunity passports. And this is the idea that people with antibodies can return to work faster and they mm. have papers to prove this. Um, all of 
these kinds of ideas have origins, uh, again, in the United States and the antebellum South during bouts of yellow fever in the late 19th century, where um, you know, white people could stay home in relative safety, whereas black people were forced to labor and trade on their behalf. Mm. Uh, and in this example, and so many more, class, race, gender-based discriminations were perpetuated. And those already in vulnerable situations were and are, as we're seeing today, disproportionately affected by pandemics. So essentially, historians in response to COVID um, were basically using examples that we studied from the past um, to warn against repeating the discriminatory impulses. Okay, so, so historians are well-placed uh, to comment on uh, perhaps the predictability of contemporary responses. And, and I'm very um, interested in the topic of discrimination that you raise, uh, and we're going to get back to that. But I want to stay with history for a moment because I understand you have done specific research on the bubonic plague pandemic in South Asia in 1896. And I, I suppose not everyone knows about that. So please uh, tell me a little bit more about the plague itself, but also please, um, tell me, I'm curious about this, what is familiar from what was going on then and what is happening now? Right, so in the example of bubonic plague, which first was discovered in Bombay, today's Mumbai, in 1896, uh, at least for the subcontinent, it was a global pandemic, just like we're experiencing now. It affected five continents. Uh, ultimately, it took approximately 15 million lives, and about 8 million of those were in India. Wow. And yeah, it was absolutely terrible um, and went on for a little over a decade, actually, in a, in a couple different mm. ways. Uh, and what's interesting with this case in relation to my research is that we see a case of colonial state repression alongside global liberalism, specifically calls that the British colonial government safeguard, safeguard the lives of their subjects. So. Global bubonic plague in 1896 presents a specifically interesting case because it was not actually the most destructive pandemic of the 20th century. Uh, I believe that was the Spanish influenza actually, mm -hmm. um, but it did evoke more fear and panic among general populations than any other. Um, and like I mentioned, it was characterized by unprecedented state intervention. And this was legalized through the Epidemic Diseases Act of 1897. Uh, which was used to control both the spread of the disease and the spread of quote-unquote misinformation. Um, and it's actually this 123-year-old law that Prime Minister Modi and his government are currently using to enforce really stringent COVID measures in India, for example. Um, and the, some of these measures in the late 19th century included forced quarantine, disinfection of homes and people, managing travel, measures that are pretty familiar today. But these policies in the colonial context took on the form of forced medical examinations inside homes, but also in streets, where Indians experienced humiliation, ridicule by British doctors and soldiers. Um, these measures included destruction of property. So roofs were removed, floors were dug up, houses were flooded with chemical disinfectants and infected persons were forcibly removed to makeshift hospitals where they often died without loved ones and had little concern over, um, there was little concern in general about death and burial rights. Mm -hmm. um, and as we see today as well, uh, women are, were even more adversely affected in the late 19th century and had to deal right. 
the forced medical examinations, um, caretaking responsibilities, domestic violence, et cetera. And that, um, thank you for bringing that in, because I wanted to ask you about that um, <laughs> on the more kind of um, quotidian uh, level of this, a, a recent New York Times article had the memorable and entirely unsurprising headline, uh, quote, nearly half of men say they do most of the homeschooling. 3% of women agree, unquote. Um, that's uh, disappointing, but not unpredictable. But there are also um, enormous, uh, there's an enormous rise in cases of domestic violence. And this idea that uh, we are, quote unquote, safer at home uh, is clearly not true for many uh, women, female identified people, people of all genders and children as well. Yeah, I think that's that's something that has a historical precedent and is obviously extremely worrying today. I've, I've also been reading about a she session, which refers to worries about any progress that women have made uh, in the fields of business, of work outside of the home is going to be lost, um, mm. a dissolving of any historical boundaries that we may have created between home time and work time, or between domestic and non-domestic labor. Uh, I think, yeah, these are very unfortunate realities and really start to help us question what is safe and where is safe during this time. Yeah, I find it an unfortunate. I understand that, um, you know, we need, um, we need to communicate the need to stay home in meaningful ways and so safer at home uh, might seem like a good slogan rather than uh, you know perhaps seemingly more repressive statements uh, but it's also patently untrue for for many speaking of a kind of oppressive measures um, you mentioned uh, this uh, the, the state force uh, in colonial times uh, with reference to the 1896 uh, pandemic I wanted to ask you about this um, 1897 Epidemic Diseases Act that is being invoked now by the Modi government. Uh, according to MIT Technology Review's COVID tracing tracker, which is available online, India is currently, uh, and I quote, the only democratic nation in the world that is making its coronavirus tracking app mandatory for millions of people, unquote. Uh, and. Um, I did a little research in that, and the, man, the mandatory is not for everyone. It, it does include government workers, it seems, and I read today also to travel on some train services. So while it's not mandatory for everyone yet, there are nevertheless serious civil liberties concerns, I would say, uh, in addition to the fact that however India may present itself, only around about a third at this stage, a third of its population has access to smartphones. So yeah, that's a lot of people, but there are more people who don't have access to such an app. So for me, that begs the question of whom we are keeping safe and also who has access to information. Yeah, I've also been reading so many of these articles about how monitoring technologies that are used often by intelligence services mm -hmm. in, in various states across the world are now being presented as kind of a savior technology. Right. That is, you know, promoting the idea that technology is going to keep us safer as a society or as a nation. Um, and studying pandemics in historical perspective, it, while it can provide a warning against giving governments too much power, uh, I think especially in the form of declaring emergencies, which we've seen in South Asia throughout the past, um, or invoking a you know, over 100 year old colonial law to legalize repressive measures, 
um, you would just have to be careful about forced surveillance on populations, especially when there's a lack of infrastructure necessary to make a program successful. Mm. Um, and I think you're right, it remains to be seen whether current suggestions, such as an app that can track those around you, um, that purports to keep people safe will actually just replicate the oppressive tendencies of states or become another mechanism for social discrimination. Right. Um, and I, I will say, I mean, to take another example from the South Asian past, in 1896, Indians responded to colonial, oppressive colonial measures with widespread protests. Um, protests even resulted in what's widely regarded as the first political assassination on the subcontinent in 1897, mm -hmm. when the British Plague Commissioner was shot and killed. Oh, wow. Yeah, so essentially, you know, the state's repressive measures pushed people to invent new means of circumventing these regulations. So while the vaccine against bubonic plague was made in 1897, this deep mistrust of British officials and doctors uh, meant the population avoided vaccination, avoided health checks, and therefore was not totally protected against recurrent bouts of plague. Um, and vaccinations, of course, have a very problematic history, especially when it comes to subject testing and forced vaccinations in colonial contexts. So it seems as if questions about, you know, whether these apps are going to be on a mandatory or a voluntary basis and whether they actually can keep people safe when it comes to data, those types of information and what what people do with this kind of information is, is definitely some source of concern. It's there's so much uh, that we don't know yet. And there's so much that has yet to play out. It's I think many of us are kind of waiting for the vaccine because it feels like, you know, we can't go back to quote unquote normal until the vaccine is here. So it's be it becomes this moment in the future where we can take back something that uh, we think we want that reminds us of what we had before and it's for sure going to be a lot more complicated than that and and in addition to uh, all the um, problematics of the vaccine that you already refer to however um building on this idea of the app that you know we know is not as straightforward as it seems we know that we can use technology to our advantage and here i am particularly thinking about the way that social media can be mobilized in both productive and also less productive ways. Uh, but if social media is a place to mobilize people and where large populations can be reached, what do you think is the role of quote unquote influencers or notable South Asians in pop culture? Uh, going back to the, the, um, the album that we started with, so bring in pop culture here. Uh, people who are also concerned with these questions of historical biases and racism against Asians. Right. I mean, as, as we mentioned earlier, pandemics uh, are always responded to with not just the spread of disease, but also the spread of information or misinformation, as the case may be. And I think social media does have this very dualistic aspect to it. It's for good and evil. Um, but it also has helped increase communication and work from home formats during COVID, which is something that hasn't been possible in the past in the same ways. Um, I'm actually in, and it could also be, of course, mobilized in less productive ways. I'm thinking of the pandemic video that came out a few days ago, which renewed a long-term debate about what is the role of these various platforms, YouTube, Facebook, et cetera, in being able to decide on what content they can support. Um, but speaking specifically about South Asians in pop culture, mm -hmm. notably in Britain and in the US, uh, it's been great that ever since COVID, um, Many of these influencers are having conversations with each other on various platforms, 
And they are putting out a message similar to those of activists and historians, which is to warn against discrimination, racism, um, against South Asians, within South Asian communities, against Muslims. Um, and they, they do have a different audience and a different reach than professional historians. So I think it's extremely significant that some of these people are, are essentially trying to warn against the same thing, um, to be careful not to reproduce discrimination from the past. Sure, I get that. I mean, I get that your average Instagram account has a different kind of audience base. I, I wouldn't want to use the word fan base when we're comparing something to academia, but um, a, a different audience than, uh, than the professor or, or academic. Um, but I still wonder, I mean, can quote-unquote famous people or people that have a big social media presence? Can they actually change people's minds? Like, who are, whom are they talking to? Who? Um, I'm just, I was thinking about um, Brian Adams yesterday uh, showing himself to be, um, how shall I word this, someone with questionable views on the origins of the coronavirus. Um, but insofar as he was relevant at all, I just don't know if, if it really affects his fan base, people that are still excited about him, are they going to change their minds because he's tweeting out something that's um, blatantly wrong and biased? Um, I, I follow the comedian Harry Kondabolu. He tweets regularly about COVID and the US government and, and he's political, but does he reach anyone beyond the people that are already into him? That's a really good question. I mean, Historically speaking, um, I, I think it's generally true that people tend towards, they gravitate towards those who share similar viewpoints to themselves, those whose personalities, whose positionalities are closer to their own. Um, and your question of famous people, if, if they can change people's minds, also reminds me of anti-vaxxers, which mm. I believe um, was a really popular ideology after celebrities started associating themselves with a movement, which could prove pretty worrying in the current situation. Huh. Um, yeah, and I think, I think that you know, the dark sides of government intervention and social media, especially since controlling information and having access to information looks really different today than it has in most of human past, uh, it's just a good idea to be critical of all of the various means of getting information uh, and potentially expanding out to those who might have something to say even if they're not replicating your positionality. Uh, is probably a good way of making sure that you're wrapping your head around various kinds of information. I, I guess that's where the, the disclaimer retweet does not equal endorsements. <laughs> very <laughs> handy. Um, well, I want to um, move it back a little bit into the question of history as a discipline. And I'm, I'm sorry that I'm going to, to end uh, with this old chestnut. And I apologize for taking us down this path. But I'm just very curious about your take on this. Um, it's often said that we have to study history. Uh, so we do not repeat the mistakes from the past. I don't think there's any evidence that that works, which is not to say we should not study history, obviously. But it's endlessly repeated. History is endlessly repeated. So as an historian, how do you deal with this question of why? I get asked that question all the time. And I do Sorry. agree with you. <laughs> no, not at all. Uh, I think when you look at it in a longer term perspective, it is hard to see some of um, some of the larger changes that we've made. I mean, obviously, the response to COVID-19 um, 
in South Asia, but in most places across the world has been somewhat stringent, but nowhere near as stringent as what happened with British officials in Bombay in 1896, where they're going into people's homes, flooding them with chemicals, et cetera, et cetera. So in that sense, we do have a little bit of difference. I'm not sure that it's you know the result of having gone into the past in order to learn how to be better. Um, and in the examples we've talked about, there's pretty much always been some sort of pandemic or epidemic present in the long span of human history. Uh, and the big questions confronting societies really do remain the same. So how much state intervention is too much? What constitutes information? And more importantly, who gets to decide what is correct and what is misinformation? Um, can science and technology save us? This is actually a deeply historical question. Mm -hmm. um, but really what I think people are trying to ask is not should we study history so we don't repeat mistakes, but rather do humans get better over time? Mm -hmm. Which I think is a little different from the question that actually interests me more, which is can humans get better over time? Interesting distinction. Okay. And so? <laughs> well, I mean, I think at least in the, the people that I'm following, um, there's already you know, notably those who are already engaged in anti-discriminatory activism before COVID, um, a lot of them also do seem to think that this is a time that's ripe for change. And I like the idea of seeing moments of crisis as offering possibilities to change for the better. Uh, that's not always the dominant historical narrative, but I think what's, what's important even in the song that you opened with is this idea that Dobadek Singh is a character who is not he cannot easily accept a nationalist narrative. Um, and yet he's a, a you know, character who's been in a mental asylum for much of his life. And yet he has a more clearer view on something like partition than people who have not spent the past couple decades in a mental asylum. Um, and the fact that someone like Riz Ahmed in 2020 is looking back to 1955 and using that as a way to think through um, identity and South Asian identity in a diasporic context with a colonial past um, is another way to think about, think outside of dominant historical narratives, think about what is valuable to us in this day and age and why, and really use that to determine going forward, um, what are we going to take with us when we try to imagine a post-COVID world. Thank you for that a very comprehensive answer to my um, somewhat cheeky question, but I know it's a question that's out there, even if it's not strictly mine. Madiha, thank you so much for your time today and for your commitment. I wish you all the best in these very challenging times ahead. I imagine it's not a great time to be wrapping up a doctoral thesis, uh, as you already alluded to, but good luck with everything. I have been Lalita Duperan, Associate Director in the Stanford Center for South Asia. And thank you everyone for listening to our podcast series. We regularly drop new episodes, so check out our website, southasia.stanford.edu. Uh, and I will say goodbye to Madia. Thank you, Lalita. Thank you so much for being with us.